As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1950. For the first time since the start of the Industrial Revolution, people are moving out of the cities and into the suburbs, as they came to be known. The median home sold in the United States cost $7,400 in a time where the median household income was $2,900 per year, overwhelmingly earned by a single worker, it should be added. At this time, an average house only reflected just over two-thirds the average household income, Therefore, it was not unreasonable to expect that some people could pay these homes off within a matter of years, but they didn't. Interest rates were relatively low during this post-war period, so there wasn't much pressure to make extra repayments, and more so than that, housing just wasn't seen as a major expense. The average cost of a new car at this time was around $2,000. So, if a family had two cars in their driveway, it was not that uncommon for the cars to cost more than the house, especially in places like the Midwest where home prices were lower than the coastal states. Of course, two cars at this time was still a bit of a flex, so this situation wasn't the norm, but fast forward to today and it sounds almost totally ludicrous. Picture an average home in a nice suburb on the outskirts of Chicago or Seattle, Maybe even consider the same in Vancouver, Sydney, Auckland, or if you want to get really crazy, London. Unless those cars parked in the driveway are Lambos, you are not getting anywhere close to these two assets lining up on price. And I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, house prices have become more expensive. Tell us something we don't know. And I get it. But this comparison might be more important than you think. Housing affordability has once again become a huge issue in the light of the pandemic, Spurred on by the need for more personal living space, aided by the convenience of working from home, people are once again moving out of the cities and into the burbs, driving up prices. But is this all for the best? Well, the answer to that question is not as simple as you would think, and to properly answer it, we must first understand a few important arguments. What was driving up house prices before the pandemic? What has been driving up house prices during the pandemic? Is this price growth actually a bad thing? And finally, what would be an ideal solution to all of this? Is there a market outcome that benefits everybody? Now, if we go back in time to the 1950s again, we will see that there was a few things that pushed people out of living in city centres, where they were predominantly renters, and into the suburbs, where they were predominantly homeowners. A big issue that can't be overlooked in the United States particularly was the so-called era of white flight. The predominantly white middle class abandoned inner cities in favour of suburbs because they were seen as safer areas to live in, and by safer, well, we mean more white. We will probably make an entire video on this subject very soon because it's almost as fascinating as it was terribly misguided. 
Either way, this whole process was accelerated by a few key developments. The interstate highway system developed after World War II allowed people to use their new acquired cars to commute quickly and easily over great distances into their place of work every day. Just a few decades prior, and getting out of the city and into the country would have involved catching a train if you were lucky, or a horse-drawn carriage if you weren't. Obviously not something that was feasible for most people's daily commute. This was the same everywhere in the Western world, and other nations like Australia, Canada, and even the UK did what they do best and followed the trends set down by the United States to trade in metropolitan townhouses for a quarter-acre block and a white picket fence. This all had an impact that would seem very strange to us today. It made housing more affordable. Two decades later in 1970, the average home in the US was $17,000, which is of course more than what it was in the 50s, but not by much. In fact, it only really kept up with inflation during this period. For contrast, the median salary at this time had almost tripled to $8,700 a year, which meant that the average house was less than two times the average household income, and many people were buying houses that cost less than their annual salaries. Why? Well, because there was more supply. Urban sprawl had taken hold and houses were being popped up everywhere. What's more is that the demand didn't really come along with it. Populations were two-thirds of what they are today, and the idea of investing in real estate wasn't exactly mainstream. Cash rates were also as high as 13% during the 70s, which meant it was hard enough to maintain a mortgage on the home that you lived in, let alone a property to invest in. Real estate was simply a commodity. It was lumber, iron ore, orange juice, or rice. It was something that people needed, it was something that people valued, but still something that was expected to be available for a reasonable price. This all turned around though in the 1980s. This was when real estate started acting less like a commodity and more like an investment vehicle. A few things changed in the 1980s. People once again started looking to move back into the cities and proximity to city centres became a mark of prestige for certain suburbs. This was accelerated by a massive defaulted real estate sell-off following the recession of 1981, tempting people to make the leap into buying up some fire sale properties as their first speculative investment into real estate. All of this was made easier with the widespread adoption of Louis Ranieri's mortgage bond. This was the start of a trend that saw house price growth completely divorce itself from wage growth. Fast forward three decades and the median home value in the USA was more than four times the average salary, and this figure was taken from 2010, mind you, back when home prices were recovering from the subprime mortgage crisis. This was all sort of to be expected though. It's simple supply and demand. People were demanding not only larger homes, but homes that were closer to city centres or other amenities. This restricted supply. The widespread adoption of 30-year mortgages, lower interest rates, higher incomes, and the institutional push by the finance industry to write more and more loans increased the demand. Bada bing, bada boom, if you will. Now, it was obviously a little bit more complicated than that, and we actually have already made an entire video on the supply-demand dynamic of real estate, if you're interested in a more detailed analysis, but even still, was this actually for the best? Shelter is a pretty fundamental human right, and in an advanced economy, I'm sure most of us would expect that shelter is comfortable, adequate in size, and not in a totally unsuitable location. Skyrocketing prices are threatening to push this basic right outside the reach of most normal people in a lot of cities around the world. 
in my own backyard here in Sydney, it was not uncommon to see news stories of 10 students or more living in a two-bedroom apartment to share in astronomical rental prices. Likewise, just across the pond in Auckland, average house prices rose by over 20% just last year, meaning that even a young couple earning average salaries and somehow saving 100% of their income towards a deposit would actually be going backwards as the dream of home ownership speeds away from them in a speculative flurry. This is particularly bizarre considering that this all came during a global pandemic. The two examples I gave of Sydney and Auckland, alongside other cities like Vancouver, Toronto and to a lesser extent London, are particularly surprising considering their historic dependence on foreign dollars. Foreign direct investment has been a point of major contention in these city centres as cashed up investors from abroad outcompete local residents in their respective housing markets. The thing is though, this has obviously not been possible with the world in lockdown, certainly not to the same extent. Despite this, the property markets in these cities, and most major city centres in advanced nations for that matter around the world, have skyrocketed in recent months. Now, you may think we already know the reason why, but there is actually about six different factors at play here. The first is of course low interest rates. This makes borrowing more money easier, which gives people more monetary firepower to take to property sale negotiations, where they will normally be competing with people who are also able to borrow more money more easily. The second issue is somewhat the same as the first, which is that the largest stimulus measures in history have sent a wash of money into the economic system and disproportionately into the hands of wealthier people who will be able to use this extra money as a down payment on a house. This is not exclusive to the United States either. Here in Australia, a controversial move by the Australian government allowed citizens to access their superannuation retirement accounts, the equivalent of an American 401k, for up to 20,000 Australian dollars that otherwise would have been locked away until, well, retirement. These withdrawals were meant to be used by struggling households who lost their jobs through no fault of their own to survive through tough times, which is, you know what, fair enough. But it was also used by a lot of people to boost their deposit savings. Curiously enough, in the months following the rollout of this policy, the size of the average deposit needed for young Australians to purchase their first home increased by $20,000 in the major cities. Hmm. Now, points one and two actually say a lot more about the declining value of currencies across the world, more so than the appreciating value of property. Go and watch our video on hyperinflation to learn more about that. The third factor is that people are genuinely looking to spend more money on a house. Being stuck inside for close on a year and a half now means that people are really keen for some extra square footage. This means that people in a one-bedroom apartment might want to look into an apartment where they have their own home office, people in a two-bedroom apartment might want the outdoor space of a townhouse, and people living in a townhouse might want to move into a full-on freestanding home so that they have space to hide from their family of whom they are stuck with 24-7. Everyone trading up puts more demand on the entire property ladder. This is accelerated by factor 4, which is that people are saving more money. One of the biggest hurdles to buying your first property, or your first investment property, or even moving up to a larger family home, is saving the money needed for the down payment. This hurdle is starting to be overcome by a lot of households thanks to the highest savings rate the USA has seen in decades. Part of this is by choice. People are worried about the future and whether they will have a job once government stimulus stops, so are naturally saving more money just in case. But a good portion of this saving is almost entirely accidental. 
Not being able to go on holidays or eat out or even spend a weekend wasting money at the mall has combined with some pretty generous stimulus measures to put a lot more money into people's savings accounts. This is money which can in turn be used to make up those down payments. The fifth factor is where this gets really weird, and that is that people are scared to sell. Conventional economic wisdom dictates that as the price of a good rises higher and higher, more and more market participants will be willing to sell that good to satiate the demand at that higher price. The problem here is that housing is a necessity. As we have seen, real estate today blurs the line between an investment vehicle and a basic necessary commodity. Both of these classifications tend to skew the results of our perfect little economic assumptions about market behaviour. As a human necessity, high house prices don't always compel people to sell their homes because they're just going to have to buy back into the same market, compete in one of the most broken rental markets in history, or live on the streets. None of these options make the people any better off. What's more is that this fear compounds on itself. Not many people are selling, so the people that do sell with the intention to buy a new home in the same market run the risk of not being able to find a suitable home quickly enough and then having the market appreciate rapidly, meaning that they need to purchase a home that is worse, or put themselves into more debt to get back into a similar property. This all means that people would rather hold off on selling, and the cycle repeats itself. This process is exacerbated when you consider the expenses involved in transacting a home. Real estate agent commissions, capital gains taxes, sales taxes, legal fees, property evaluation fees, removalists... Moving house is an expensive affair and not something that people do unless there is a substantial benefit to doing so. Now, of course, there are people that own homes that they don't live in and instead hold on to them as investment properties, but even then, the decision to sell is not one driven by typical market forces. Human emotions tend to motivate people to hold on to investments that are doing well or perhaps even double down on them. Just look at people flock to buy meme stocks or cryptocurrencies if you want to see this counterintuitive market expectation in action. Of course, there is eventually a limit, especially in local markets. If someone offered me $10 million for my house tomorrow, I would take it in a heartbeat and go and live on some remote island somewhere for the rest of my life. But that only makes sense because the value of the property gives me wealth required to exit that market entirely. Now, the sixth issue is something that is only just starting to take effect, and that is a serious shortage in building supplies. The slowdown of international supply chains and the closure of various industrial centres across the world has meant that things as basic as lumber to build frames with have doubled in price. This is if you can get them at all. There are reports of builders turning down jobs, not because they are limited by manpower, but because they simply can't get the supplies that they need to complete the job. This is threatening to further constrain supply for the types of homes that people are going after. It also means that if a family was tossing up between buying an already established home off the market versus building a home for themselves and actually adding to the supply of housing, well, unfortunately, that decision is going to get made for them. These six factors mean that despite all the turbulence in the global economy at the moment, house prices are continually creeping up. But perhaps that might actually be for the best. There looks to be no shortage of people complaining about expensive housing. However, not as many have stopped to ask if this is actually a problem. In most advanced economies in the world today, a majority of people are homeowners. 
it stands to reason that the people that own these homes want them to appreciate in value, right? This appreciation and value can be used for many different things. People can access this equity to fund construction or investment or, hey, maybe even that jet ski, all of which adds to economic consumption. Appreciating property values make people feel richer and give them a higher propensity to consume. If you have a property that you bought for half a million dollars with a $400,000 loan, which then appreciates to a million dollars in the same time that you have paid your loan down to $200,000, You have effectively increased your net worth eight times over simply by living in a house like you would have had to anyway. This kind of potential for massive gains is true of all investments made using leverage, but buying stocks with the same 5 to 1 leverage that is standard for a mortgage will normally attract higher interest rates and riskier contract terms like margin calls, which makes them unsuitable for regular investors. What's more is that you can't live in a 5 to 1 leveraged stock portfolio. This is also fantastic because it is a really powerful retirement saving tool. The average person is pretty dumb, financially speaking. Most people make little effort to save for retirement, even if they are able to at all. By owning a family home, however, simply by paying off a mortgage over 30 years, people will build equity in an asset that can be used in retirement in a few different ways. Assuming that their kids move out, which mm, might not be a given these days, they can sell it and downsize into a smaller property, keeping the difference in price to fund their retirement. They can rent the property out and use this cash flow to rent a smaller place and fund their retirement. Or, of course, they can continue to live in this paid-off home, which means that whatever money they do have coming in does not need to be diverted into paying for housing, which is a surprisingly large portion of most people's budgets. This kind of self-funded retirement will be more and more important in coming years as ageing populations put a larger burden on state-funded retirement systems like pensions. Now, the other argument is philosophical more so than it is purely economical, but in a democratic country where the majority of the voting population has a vested interest in an asset class appreciating in value, is it really fair that a government would take policy steps towards stifling that growth? Again, Not a purely economic argument, so I don't want to tell you what's right or wrong, but let me know what your thoughts are in the comments section below. Now, the counter-argument to all of this is basically everything that we explored in our last video on the real estate market. Again, go and watch that video after this one if you're interested, because I don't want to repeat too much and have this video drag on for half an hour, because that would take away from what you've all been waiting for, which is the solution. Okay, so everyone has their own opinion as to what the solution to the housing affordability crisis is, but before any of that can even be considered, we need to know what we're aiming for. Certainly, we don't want prices to crash. That causes a lot of issues with people being underwater on their home loans and all of the other nastiness we saw in 2008. But we probably don't want houses to become unaffordable to all but the wealthiest among us either. And if they keep growing like they have been in the past decade, well, that's where we're going to end up. Perhaps the best solution is for them to do nothing at all. Think of it like this. Wheat is a commodity. It provides us value by being baked into bread or pasta or pizza or whatever. People can speculate on it, and indeed they do in commodities markets. But ultimately, nobody holds on to wheat long term in the hope that it will quadruple in value over the next decade. In fact, if wheat did quadruple in value, we would probably see that as a market failure because suddenly all of our food would be much more expensive. Real estate is also a commodity. 
it provides us with value by giving us a place to live or work or farm. Maybe farm some wheat, I guess. Anyway, perhaps we should start seeing the appreciation of property values the same way that we would see the appreciation of other commodities, which is kind of a bad thing. This has a lot of advantages. For starters, people trying to break into the property market don't have a moving target where they need to save more money just to keep up. It also doesn't stop people building wealth by paying off their mortgages or even by investing into rental properties because these will still provide cash flows. More stable price appreciation tends to also mean that depreciation will be less severe during economic downturns, which means that there is less of a chance for people to end up with properties worth less than their mortgage. What's more is that stable pricing means that you avoid capital gains taxes where applicable for people looking to trade in their homes, which in turn means that people will be more willing to move between their homes as their families grow and shrink over their life. Now, you might think all of these advantages come at the expense of the poor, poor landlords. I know, don't cry too hard. But that's only half true. Property investors that do nothing but sit on property and wait for it to appreciate in value, well... Yeah, they're going to lose out, but whatever. Go put that money towards productive capital instead. The economy will be better off for it. Instead, money will flow to investors that add value to the market, just like it does with regular commodities. If you turn iron ore into steel efficiently, you get the profit off the value that you added. If you bake wheat into bread, you get to profit off the value that you added. And if you turn a dilapidated house into a block of units, you get to profit off the value that you created by giving people a place to live that did not previously exist. This hypothetical is basically the reality in Japan, where house prices have barely moved over the past decade. Is this the ideal? Well, it might be hard to convince the homeowning majority that it is, but it's certainly not something that should be completely disregarded, especially when the alternative is a future where people consider themselves lucky to be burdened by an almost unserviceable debt for the majority of their working lives simply to have a place to call home. Even still, this is unlikely to even be considered in the coming years. 